Let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, and verses 13 through 25. Romans 4, reading from verse 13 to the end of the chapter in verse 25. Let's hear now God's holy word. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this evening. Amen. Once again, relying upon the Holy Spirit for his help and guidance this evening, let's turn back to the verses that we just read in Romans chapter 4. And we'll be focusing our attention upon verses 17 and 18, and also uh, verses 24 and 25 as we continue our theme from this morning, and as we push back that additional theme of Abraham being heir of the world, we'll touch upon that, God willing, to some extent tonight as a, something of an introduction to that theme, and then, God willing, in the future, we'll do a, a mini-sermon series just on that phrase and its significance in terms of the message of the Bible. But, This evening, looking at verse 17, uh, we've just been told in verse 16 by Paul that Abraham is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And verse 18, speaking of Abraham's faith, in the God who gives life to the dead. It says that contrary to hope, in hope Abraham believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. It's very significant here, as we've said in previous sermons, Abraham is the father of the faithful, the father of God's believing people, the father in some sense of God's church, Uh, we recognize that there's a continuum from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head, and he becomes the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, and, and so on and so forth. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is ultimately the head of the church. But the point here is that the church is Abraham's seed. The church in Christ, incorporated into Jesus Christ, is the seed, the offspring, and Abraham is our father, our example of faith. And 
Paul is making this point connecting two different promises that God made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. One of them is that he would give him an offspring, a seed. Uh, Galatians 3.16 tells us that seed to whom God gave the Abrahamic promises was Christ himself. And then in Galatians 3.27 and following, it says that those who are in Christ by faith are Abraham's seed. So, the seed of Abraham, in whom all the families or nations of the earth would be blessed, is Christ and his people in him. And uh, the Lord is saying that in that sense, Abraham becomes a father of many nations. These two things are very important to connect. The promise that Abraham would have a seed in whom all the nations would be blessed And that he would be, Genesis 17, the father of many nations. Paul says the promise that he'll be father of many nations is really lumped in with the promise that he will have this seed, as numerous as the stars in the heavens, as numerous as the sand uh, by the seashore. So shall your descendants be. So the, the many nations are his descendants, which is teaching us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, will go to all families of the earth, to all nations of the earth, and through faith, the nations of the earth, to a great extent, will be incorporated into the visible church of Jesus Christ, with Abraham as their father. Now, that's uh, something of a preview of of, uh, some other themes that we'll be looking at, but it's important to see that the seed of Abraham, Christ and his people, represents the descendants of Abraham, who is a father of many nations. Also, we saw that Abraham's faith in the God who raises the dead ultimately points us to the reality that the believer's justification hinges not merely upon Christ's life and death, but also on his resurrection. And that true justifying faith includes a genuine conviction that Jesus Christ is not merely the crucified Savior, but also the risen Lord. So Abraham believes this promise concerning his seed, concerning many nations, concerning God's covenant of grace. He believes this promise even though he's 100 years old, his wife is 90, her womb has been barren throughout their entire lives, And his body is as good as dead. Yet Abraham believes that promise that he'd be a father, not just of one child, which would be a miracle, but of many nations and uh, uh, an innumerable multitude of offspring. Abraham believes that promise, trusting in the God who raises the dead. And that points us to the fact, as we see in verse 24, that this is for us also. That like Abraham, we believe God's covenant promise. We believe in Christ who was to come. Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He saw it and was glad. We rejoice that he has come and that he's been raised from the dead. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. We saw this morning that Christ's resurrection is essential and integral and uh, uh, invaluable in every way with respect to our justification. But let's look this evening at the way in which this faith in the resurrection power of God is evidenced in the life of Abraham. He is the father of the faithful. He's our great example of faith in some sense. And we ought to see that faith in God's resurrection power in his own life, if Paul's appeal here is grounded in the book of Genesis, which we believe it is. So if we could summarize our theme for this evening, it's Abraham's resurrection faith. We're going to see it. We're going to see it in a number of different ways. First, Abraham believed in the physical resurrection of his and his wife's bodies. Okay, so when God said that 100-year-old Abraham, whose body is as good as dead, and 90-year-old Sarah, whose womb has been dead for a long time by that point, when God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son, a child of promise, 
And contrary to what you guys cooked up in Genesis 16 with Hagar and Ishmael, this child of promise is going to come from your own wife. It's going to come from your body as good as dead. It's going to come from your, the, the deadness of your wife's womb. And Abraham believed in that, in some sense, physical resurrection of his body, which was as good as dead, yet God imparted life to his body, vitality to his body. And his wife's body, who her womb is as good as dead, God imparts and infuses life into her womb. He renews their youth, not merely as uh, sort of pious language or as a, as a figure of speech that we see in the scriptures for God sending us encouragement and spiritual vitality, but he literally renewed their youth and revitalized and resurrected their bodies in some sense and removed the effects of aging and enabled them to conceive a child and Sarah to carry that child to term and deliver that child by faith in the promise. So Abraham believed in that, that supernatural, miraculous resurrection of his body and of Sarah's womb. Now, we've been saying that Abraham's faith, though it is significant, though it is an example for us, though Paul highlights it time and time again, that Abraham's faith is not the basis of his right standing with God. Abraham's faith is merely an empty hand receiving the fullness of Christ and his righteousness. If Abraham's faith itself was imputed to him, as some people read in a very wooden kind of interpretation, they read some of the verses in this, uh, for instance, verse 22, it was accounted to him for righteousness. If we say that Abraham's faith itself was accounted as the basis of his right standing with God, then Abraham is in trouble. And if you think your faith is the basis of your right standing with God, in other words, your faith itself, your most precious faith, your most holy faith, your obedience of faith, if you think that's the basis of your right standing with God, that you've done something, uh, or even by the grace of God you've done something. God has called out through the gospel, and all these other people sinfully reject it and harden their hearts, but not you. You believed. And now it's imputed to you as your right standing with God. If you interpret the text and apply it to yourself in that manner, you're in trouble. Let me, let me explain why. If you go back to Genesis 17... Uh, we know Paul speaks of Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4. He says, not being weak in faith. Uh, he says that, verse 21, he was fully convinced. Uh, but it's also the case that Abraham didn't get there right away. Let's look at Abraham's actual profession of faith when he first heard this promise. This is after he and Sarah tried to uh, operate according to plan B with Hagar and Ishmael in, in chapter 16. Uh, now we come to chapter 17, verse 15. Listen to this. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations." Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I hope Abraham's right standing with God is not based on his uh, reaction to the promise, his faith, because as we see in the life of the man uh, uh, who came before Jesus with his son who needed the demon cast out of him, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You can see that here with Abraham. Uh, he believes, but he's got a lot of unbelief. His knee-jerk reaction is more like Nicodemus. How's this possible? You know, can a man re-enter his mother's womb or can a 90-year-old woman give birth? Uh, why don't we go back and look at Ishmael, the child of the flesh? Maybe there's something there, Lord. Maybe that would be a little bit easier, more, a little bit more realistic. So there's a lot of unbelief that's infecting and 
uh, really sitting there alongside Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith is mixed and riddled with doubt, sinful doubt. And so the very people that are coming to us and saying, well, the obedience of faith, yes, well, the disobedience of doubt and unbelief. You can see both mixed up together in Abraham's faith. It's genuine faith. It's not perfect faith. It's genuinely righteous in a sense, right? Faith as a response to God's uh, gospel is righteous in a sense. It's, you know, to believe is to obey God, to, to believe what he says to believe. And, but it, it's not perfect righteousness. And so it's no basis for a right standing with God. If Abraham were to come before God on Judgment Day with this faith of Genesis 17, even though it eventually grew, and yes, it grew strong, but if he were to come before God on the basis of his imperfect faith riddled with doubts, he would be damned for the sin of doubt which accompanied his faith. So it was a genuine faith, but it was an imperfect faith, which means the only way it could factor into justification is if it's simply receiving Christ's righteousness and that Christ's righteousness alone is the thing that God is putting under the microscope and evaluating when he renders that verdict that the believer is righteous. So Abraham's faith didn't start off too strong in this instance, but uh, the Lord did bear up patiently with him as he does with all of his believing people. Then God said, verse 19, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so God establishes the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham believes. And he follows, he, he obeys God, he implements circumcision. Abraham believes in the promise. And in that uh, ordinance of circumcision, as we've seen, Abraham is renouncing his own performance. He's renouncing the power of the flesh. He's renouncing, in one sense, the fleshly means by which he begat uh, the child of the flesh, Ishmael. And he's acknowledging that it's going to be God's promise and God's power alone that will produce the child of promise. So he did believe and he did grow strong in faith, but his heart needed to be circumcised to some extent there uh, in that sense. Now, Abraham believed that. And everything physical, everything by way of his uh, natural human observation of the situation was telling him otherwise. There is absolutely no way that Abraham's physical body and Sarah's womb could have produced Isaac. And so he believed in the supernatural power of God. He walked not by sight, but by faith. And once again, this is a perfect illustration of the gospel of justification by faith alone, first of all, because you can't see, dear believer, you can't see your righteousness. You can read about it. God's testifying concerning it in the, in the epistle of the Romans, throughout the scriptures. So you can hear God telling you that by faith, your righteousness is in Christ and what he accomplished on your behalf and that he's interceding for you at God's right hand as your advocate. Every time you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His blood cleanses you from all sin. But nothing in your outward circumstances tells you that you are perfectly righteous in the sight of God. Now, according to the false gospel of Roman Catholicism and of virtually every other cult and uh, false pseudo-Christian religion, which incorporates some degree of human performance and works into the equation of justification, uh, according to those teachings, there are things in your life that you can look to tangible observations of things in your life, good works that you've done, baptism that you've experienced, uh, you've performed various rituals religiously, or you've uh, labored diligently in prayer or in reading the Bible, again, doing works of charity and mercy. You see, these other uh, false gospels are seeking to 
provide observational data so that you don't have to rely 100% on God's promise of righteousness through faith. They can't deal with that promise of righteousness by faith. That the only way I know I'm righteous is by the testimony of the Word of God and the Spirit testifying with my spirit. That's the only way. No, they want to see uh, good works that become the basis. And you can say, see, I was like this, now I'm like this, so now I know that I'm righteous. Now, of course, sanctification provides evidence of conversion. But at the end of the day, ultimately, our confidence in our right standing with God hinges on the testimony of God's Word, believing it, though we cannot see the righteousness itself. But it's also a beautiful picture, this uh, resurrection of Abraham and Sarah's bodies. This is a beautiful picture of the resurrection of Christ. When Jesus Christ was crucified, he was marred beyond the appearance of a man, Isaiah 52 and 53. They took him down from the cross, they put him in a tomb, they put the stone in front of the tomb and sealed it with the Roman insignia and put soldiers there to guard it. That's it. Jesus is dead. His followers, even believers on the road to Emmaus, were discouraged. We thought he was the Savior. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was this great prophet. We thought all these things, but our hopes are dashed to pieces because there's nothing by way of physical observational data, nothing by sight that would indicate that in fact Jesus Christ is victorious and that he'll be raised from the dead. Nothing. Nothing but the scriptures, nothing but the promise, nothing but the declaration of the Lord in advance that he'd be raised from the dead on the third day. But there was nothing, just like Abraham had no outward indication that he or Sarah could conceive a child. There was no outward indication. Jesus' body was absolutely dead. They stabbed him in the side, blood and water flowed. He was dead, he was buried. It was over. And so the only way, the only way to believe that promise is to believe the promise. There's no other added thing to help with that. I mean, you think of a similar instance in the Old Testament when early in Joseph's life, the Lord comes to Joseph with two revelatory dreams and says that he will be exalted and his family will bow down to him. Uh, he, perhaps foolishly or perhaps not, we could debate the point, shares that with his family. They're unhappy about it. His father Jacob keeps the saying in mind. But eventually, Jacob uh, or Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. And then, though he prospers in Potiphar's house, eventually he's falsely accused and he's thrown into prison to rot there. And even when there's some glimmer of hope that uh, the cupbearer is going to get him out of jail. The cupbearer forgets about him for two years. And there's Joseph in the slammer, in prison, with iron shackles on his hands, and it seems hopeless. The Word of God seems to have failed. And you can read about this in Psalm 105. The Word of God tested Joseph. Did Joseph and would Joseph believe that, yes, God's promise would be fulfilled? There was nothing in his outward circumstances to indicate that. The only way to know for certain that it would be the case was to believe, to walk not by sight, looking at the prison, but to walk by faith. And it's even more so, I would say, even a greater act of faith for Jacob to believe that Joseph was alive. Uh, of course, Jacob's other sons sold Joseph into slavery and eventually came back to Jacob and lied and said, you know, that uh, Joseph was killed by a wild animal. They put goat's blood on his coat of many colors and they fabricated this tall tale to their father Jacob. And he didn't trust them very much, but eventually he bought into it. And uh, he was unwilling to be comforted. And for many years, uh, wrestled with this and struggled with this. But you see, he had kept the saying in mind that Joseph would be raised up and that the whole family would bow down to him. 
He had heard that. He seemed to regard it as a saying that was sent by revelation of God himself. Uh, Jacob should have believed that. And he should have doubted the story from the brothers that Joseph was dead. See, his biblical presuppositions of believing God's promise should have made their report, as plausible as it sounded, to be disqualified. This cannot be true. And eventually, we know later that when Joseph was raised up by God to second in command in the Egypt, uh, the uh, empire of Egypt, that he sent for his father and brought him to Egypt and they were reunited. And Jacob saw that, in fact, God's promise was fulfilled. But you see, God does this throughout the scriptures. He gives us promises. He, as one preacher said, he, he points to the other side of the, the mountain and there's a chasm in between and there's a bridge and he says, I want you to go from the top of this mountain to that other mountain and you're going to make it successfully. And then he proceeds to burn the bridge. And so God comes to Abraham and Sarah and he says, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to give you a massive offspring of descendants. And then he burns the bridge. He lets their, their youthful vigor and strength die out. And now they're 90 years, 100 years old. He burns the bridge. With Joseph, he did the same thing. Same thing with Christ. He was dead. He was buried. And many of his disciples were despairing. God burned the bridge. The son of promise was dead and buried. And God tested his people to believe the promise. Now there's evidence in the New Testament that at least one of Jesus' disciples by faith expected the resurrection. And that is Mary of Bethany. You see this in Matthew chapter 26 where just before the final Passover and the death of Christ, Jesus is at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. And uh, Mary anoints Jesus' head and his body with fragrant oil that she had been saving for his burial. And it's clear that she anticipated his death. And, and it's interesting as well, Jesus commends her for this. And then when the other women, of which Mary was... Uh, you know, she was with those other women almost every other place, but she's not with them when they go to the tomb. She already used up her spices, the burial spices, on Christ because she believed, based on numerous statements of Christ up to that point, she believed by faith that the Lord Jesus Christ would die, be buried, and be raised again. So she didn't go with the women to the tomb. She used up her fragrant ointment right then and there anticipating Christ's resurrection. The rest of the disciples, both men and women, needed to, to see it and to hear it, and, 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 but she just needed the promise. She believed by faith. Now, there are many things in your life that God has promised to do. This is the will of God, your sanctification. There are many things God has promised to do for believers, many uh, areas of our lives where we say, I, I just don't see God working. I don't see the, the sanctification that I'd like to see. Uh, I, I don't see God working in my children the way, you know, I'm praying for this. I'm claiming God's covenant promises. And of course, God doesn't promise to save all of our children. But you see, there are these promises and God, God urges us to diligently seek him and that he will be a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And, and we say, ah, but I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. My friends, it's at those times that God expects us with full surrender to His sovereign will. Okay, Full surrender to His sovereign will. But He expects us to simply trust and believe the promise. Even when He burns the bridge, believe the promise that He will not forsake us. That He will not leave us. That He will give us strength. He'll equip us for every good work. He will sanctify us. Uh, he will give us all that we need for life and godliness. We need to have that confidence, even when there's no outward observational reason to have confidence. We go to the promise and we cling to the promise. And we say with Abraham, uh, verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Well, he did it first, but we're seeing again, God works that grace in our lives. He increases our faith. 
He did it for Abraham to the point where eventually he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. You need to get there. We need to get there. It's absolutely necessary for the well-being of your Christian life to take hold of the promise of God, whether it be the forgiveness of your sins, that your Christian life is limping along because you just can't believe in the all-sufficient grace and mercy of God to wash away all of your sins and take away your reproach. Or maybe it's the promise of God to sanctify you and enable you to crucify the lusts that war against your soul and to raise you up in newness of life. Or maybe it's you, you, you desire for your soul to be restored. You say the Good Shepherd restores the souls of His people. And my heart is dead and cold. And I need to be made alive. And you're claiming these promises, whatever they are, whatever they may be. We need to get to the point, uh, like Abraham, though he was weak, yet he grew strong in faith to the point where he did not waver at that promise. He was strengthened in faith. And listen, he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Focus on God's power. I'd have to look at it in, in the Greek, but I'm almost certain that the word for able there is probably the word dunamis, which is power, dynamite. Look to God's dynamic power. Look to His all-sufficiency and be fully convinced, not based on what you see in your life, you're bumbling and stumbling around in this particular area of sin, uh, perhaps you're overwhelmed and enslaved by anxiety, and you say, well, there's no way out. It's quicksand. I have nothing to grab. Well, grab on to the promise of God, fully convinced that what He had promised, or that what He has promised, He is also able to perform. Look away from yourself. Look away from your spiritual enemies and dangers looming. Look to Christ and look to the almighty power and promises of God. So we see it in the physical resurrection of Abraham's body and Sarah's womb. Secondly, we see it, though it's not technically mentioned in our text, but um, I think it's relevant to bring in at this point. We see Abraham's faith in the figurative resurrection of his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. God comes to Abraham, having given him a child of promise, having raised up Isaac, if, if you do the math and if you follow most of the better commentators, uh, you'd come to the conclusion that the young lad, Isaac, was at the very least late into his teenage years, 16, 17, uh, and beyond, or perhaps even as old as late 20s, early 30s at this point. Uh, certainly, Isaac was, in, in Jewish terms, uh, a, a man and that word lad is applied to people of all kinds of ages, even to Joshua, who was, I think, like 30, 40, 50 years old or something like that. So he was young, but he was also physically mature and capable. And so God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to burn the bridge again. You, I need you to sacrifice Isaac on the altar on Mount Moriah. And we're told that Abraham having grown strong in faith, not wavering at the promise of God, fully convinced that God's promises would prevail, Abraham got up early the next morning and took Isaac to Mount Moriah, uh, the future site of the temple in Jerusalem. And Isaac willingly carried the wood and they took this trip up the mountain. And it's interesting when Abraham's servants asked him uh, about this, uh, you know, where's the animal for sacrifice and what's going on? He tells them, uh, first of all, he says that both he and the boy will return. So he's confident, though he's going to obediently sacrifice Isaac on the altar on Mount Moriah, he's confident that both he and the lad will return. He's fully convinced 
that if God promised that Isaac is the child of promise and the source of this blessing to many nations, this innumerable seed, that he and Isaac, one way or the other, are going to be going up the mountain and are going to be coming down the mountain again. And when Isaac asks about, you know, where's the animal, he says, God will provide the lamb. And so they proceed, they set up the sacrifice, Isaac willingly, as a picture of Christ, Abraham's one and only son, lies down on the altar, he's fastened to the altar, Abraham lifts up his knife, and as it were, begins to bring it down to plunge it into the heart of his son, and the angel of Jehovah, the angel and messenger of the covenant, the pre-incarnate Christ, calls out from heaven, Abraham, stop. And the Lord provides a ram in the thicket to be sacrificed in place of the child of promise. Now we know that in the death of Christ, God did not spare his own son. But in this episode, he did spare the child of promise, Isaac, and Abraham and Isaac both came down the mountain. But the point is that for Abraham to believe this, it's, forgive the, 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 the ironic uh, way of putting this, but it's unbelievable. It's literally unbelievable uh, that Abraham is going to plunge this knife into his son and kill him. And it's going to be a burnt sacrifice, right? So it's not just that God is going to have to heal Isaac from a knife wound and and from bleeding to death or something like that. It's not only that. Uh, Isaac is going to be burnt. He's going to be burnt to ashes. And Abraham is fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform, that God had the resurrection power to raise up a pile of dust and ashes, which is what Abraham elsewhere confessed that he was spiritually, but that he would raise up Isaac's dust and ashes and reassemble him, and Abraham and his son would return down the mountain. You say, well, there's no way Abraham believed that. Well, look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able, again, probably the the Greek word dunamis, powerful. I'll have to look that up later. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So the sparing of Isaac was a figurative representation that Christ would be killed on the altar of the cross and would be raised again, God's only begotten Son. But Abraham believed that God was able by his almighty sovereign power to take this child that that God had caused to be conceived in the womb in a miraculous way, and that God would miraculously raise him up from the ash heap, and they would both return down the mountain. Abraham believed that, and he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. It's amazing to see Abraham's gradual growth in grace from Genesis 16, with Hagar and Ishmael, 17, where he's still got some doubts, the whole way on to Genesis 22, where he believes that God would raise up Isaac from a pile of ashes. No question that Abraham uh, rejoiced to see Christ's day, and through that figurative resurrection of Isaac, he saw it and was glad. Imagine the conversation between Abraham and Isaac on their way down the mountain. Imagine the joy of God's resurrection power, of God's mercy and grace. It's uplifting. It was uplifting for them. It should be uplifting for us. It's a picture of what God did, turning the tables, reversing it all through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that, that causes us to have to reflect just for a moment on the fact of the resurrection of our bodies, because this is often something that people will use as a source of doubt and skepticism. 
when we speak of the biblical doctrine of the resurrection of the body. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And there are many people who say, well, how ridiculous is that? You know, that somebody is buried at sea and their body's eaten by all kinds of different fish and then those fish go over here and somebody catches the fish and, you know, you could, you could follow that out for quite a while. And, you know, all of these atoms and molecules and, and materials that were used for their body, I mean, even the fact that our own bodies right now are constantly being replenished. So, I mean, you know, the, the skin on your hands is not the same skin that you had on your hands 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago for some of us. Um, the, the physical atoms and molecules and materials are not in full continuity in every sense. Of course, we have the same soul, which is the principle of unity and continuity for our person. But the point is that it's a lot for some people to grapple with, to say, well, if we're all just going to be dust and ashes, eaten by worms or eaten by the fishes and, and all of these things, then how can God raise up our physical bodies? I mean, we've got these saints buried next to us in the cemetery, and if you, you know, we never do this, but if you, were, if you were to dig up one of those saints, you would hardly see anything of what was there when they were buried 100, 150 years ago. It would just be a pile of bones. So God's going to raise up their self-same body in unity and continuity with the body that was planted in the ground and, and buried in the ground. And yet that's what the Bible says. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. God will raise us up, even as Jesus was raised up with the same body out of the tomb. Eventually it was glorified, but the same body was raised from the dead. Even so, believers will be raised to life in the same bodies. Yes, glorified, uh, the, uh, the acorn becomes an oak tree, so there's a discontinuity in some sense. Even those who are alive at Christ's return will have to be changed, but it's the same body in principle. Okay? Job says, I will see him with my eyes. I know that my Redeemer lives. He will stand on the earth. I'll see him with these eyes. There's the same body. Who knows where Job's eyes are now, the physical materials for Job's eyes. But you see, for the believer in Christ, for the child of Abraham by faith, this is not an objection at all. Who cares? I mean, God spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. I think God can reform and refashion our bodies, the same bodies, quite easily. Thank you very much. And we don't need to know how. We don't need to know the mechanics and the scientific details, if you could even say that, about a miracle. We simply need to know that He who promised is able to perform. That's all we need to know. Everything else is out the window. Everything else is out the window. So you see Abraham's faith in the figurative resurrection of Isaac from the dead. Now, in conclusion here, let's consider also Abraham's faith in an aspect of this that's not always highlighted, but certainly is in the text, and with God's help in future weeks, we're going to spend a little bit of time, a number of sermons on this theme. But Abraham believed in the spiritual resurrection of the nations. The spiritual resurrection of the nations. Verse 13 for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Here Paul summarizes the content of God's covenant and his promises toward Abraham with this phrase. The promise that he, and if you follow the logic of the verse, and his seed, the promise that Abraham and his seed would be the heir of the world. And that they would be the heir of the world through the righteousness of faith. In other words, this is not merely an individual promise for individual salvation. It is that. And I stand by the proportion of our sermons that we've spent on the individual versus the corporate. But the fact is, this is not merely individual. Abraham is not only the father of us all and the father of believers individually, 
But in Abraham, all families of the earth are blessed. Indeed, all nations of the earth, as that promise is reiterated both in Genesis and in the New Testament, and the term families is expanded to nations. In him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And he is therefore, through the gospel, going to be the father of many nations. As it says elsewhere, kings will come from him. We read it in the promise to Sarah. Kings will come from her. And and the important thing to look at here is that Paul lumps it all together. He lumps the promise that Abraham would have a seed or an offspring. He lumps the promise of all families and nations being blessed. And he lumps the uh, father of many nations all together. So you can't say, well, Abraham and Sarah were the father and mother of the nation of Israel and there were kings in Israel. No, no. Paul's saying this covenant with Abraham is encompassed in the gospel and the church and all the things that we see coming to fruition in the new covenant period. He's the father of the church. He's the the father of the faithful. And that if through faith in Christ we become the seed of Abraham and we become blessed in him, and then all nations are blessed in him through the righteousness of faith, and he's the father of many nations in the same sense he's a father of individual believers, it's telling us that through a corporate profession of faith, the nations will be incorporated into the visible professing church of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, you can see this in our call to worship. We're going to spend a lot more time on this, Lord willing, uh, looking at how this plays itself out through the entire Bible. But in our call to worship, Isaiah 2, 2 through 5, you can see something of this. Uh, And there's something in these verses that we don't have time to get into right now, but I'm going to leave it uh, on the side for now. It has to do with the way these verses serve to complement and in a sense, uh, provide a counterpart to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So we'll leave that for a future sermon. But it says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days, that's the new covenant, Hebrews 1, 1, we're in the latter days of the new covenant, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Mountains in the Old Testament are figurative of kingdoms. So the Lord's kingdom will tower, unvanquished above all earthly kingdoms, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, and this is where Genesis 11, the language from the Tower of Babel, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's the Great Commission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. You say, this is the new heavens and the new earth. Well, nobody's getting rebuked in the new heavens and the new earth. Sorry, that's not the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, he's, not rebu- he's rebuking people because there are sinners on the earth among the nations. He will rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Peacetime uh, for geopolitical economics. Uh, Our military budget is going to be redistributed uh, into perhaps agricultural things. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Now they'll have swords. Otherwise, what point would it be to not lift them up? Okay, so again, it's not heaven, not going to have swords in heaven, um, but they're going to have swords, they'll have something, but they're not going to lift them up against each other, neither shall they learn war anymore. We're going to have to find something to do with West Point in in the meantime, I suppose. But, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, we're going to see that this promise is throughout Genesis to Revelation, and there's far more evidence of the incorporation of covenanted Christian nations into the visible church uh, as, as societies, as a corporate uh, profession of faith in Christ. There's more evidence for that than numerous other doctrines that we hold dear. And we're going to see something of that. But I want you to understand that Abraham believed 
these promises. He believed that all families and nations of the earth would be blessed in him. In other words, he believed that through Jesus Christ, though he didn't fully understand it, that the nations would be discipled. He believed that when God said that his offspring would be as innumerable as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the heavens, he believed that. And my friends, that's still happening. And it's, it's far from being fully uh, realized, even in the world today. He believed that kings and nations would come from him and that he would be the father of many nations. He believed that. And when it says he, would, he was promised that he would be the heir of the world, let's try to understand as we conclude here exactly why this points to the massive discipling of the nations in the new covenant period prior to the second coming. Why is this referring to this massive conversion among the nations? How, couldn't we interpret this world as the creation? Abraham is the heir of the created world. Uh, he's the meek who inherits the earth. Uh, and you see the word world used in this kind of way, Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. That's talking about the physical creation. Genesis chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, just as one, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So this world, word cosmos or world can refer to this physical world. Maybe it's a reference to that. Romans 16, verse 25 as well. Now to him who is able to, to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since before the world began. So Paul does use the world in that sense, the word world in that sense from time to time, but look at the context. Context is king in interpreting the scriptures. In the context, there's no reference to even the land of Canaan as a land promise pointing to the heavenly country or the new heavens and the new earth. Not one reference there to the land of Canaan or the land promise. The focus is not on the land promise or the physical creation that Abraham's offspring will inherit. The focus is on the nations of the world. The focus is on him as the father of the nations of the world. Uh, that he has uh, an innumerable offspring. So shall your descendants be. The entire focus of the passage is not on the physical world. It is on the nations of the world. Now Paul uses the word world to speak of the human race. Past, present, and future. Uh, Romans 3 verse 6. For how will that God then judge the world? Romans chapter 3, 19. All the world will be held guilty before God at the last day. Sometimes it refers to the whole human race, past, present, and future. Clearly that's not what's meant here. Not every person is inherited or, or involved in the Abrahamic promise. Paul uses it as well to speak of sinful human society in the world in which we live. Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world. Clearly, he's not speaking of sinful society. Abraham inherits sinful society or something like that. Okay, It's referring to the nations of the world. Romans 1, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Romans 10, verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In context there, it's speaking of the nations, the Gentiles who are hearing the gospel. It's not the physical terrain of the earth that's hearing the gospel. It's the nations of the world, the Gentile nations of the world. That's what he's talking about. And there's a parallel phrase that is unmistakable. Romans 11, verse 12. Uh, speaking of 
the unbelief of the Jews, there's a remnant of believers among the Jews, but most of the Jews rejected Christ and were cut off the olive tree of God's visible church, his covenant community, and he warns the Gentiles, but he speaks to them of the reality of Israel being cut off for the most part and the Gentiles being grafted into the visible covenant community through profession of faith. And he says, verse 12, now if their fall, the Jews' unbelief, if their fall is riches for the world, that's the nations of the world being brought into the church. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, see that? Hebrew parallelism. He's saying for the world, and then he explains it with the second clause, the nations. That's what the word Gentiles means. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentile nations, how much more their fullness? How much more when the Jews are converted on a, an unprecedented scale, how much more will that be a blessing to the nations of the world? If the Jewish unbelief brought them in in great measure, how much more will they be Im- impacted by the fullness of the Jews? And then uh, if you go to verse 15, for if... The Jews being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will be their acceptance but life from the dead? My friends, this is the biblical picture. The valley of dry bones, the nations of the world lost and dead in darkness and sin. And God who raises the dead, who gives life to the dead will not only raise up the Jews, the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel 37, but this will bring life from the dead, corporate, international resurrection from the dead for the nations of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead for the world? The reconciling of the world. There's no other way to consistently take these passages as we cross-reference between Romans 4 and Romans 11. There's no other way to do it. The, the world is the Gentile nations. The reconciling of the world is promised in connection with Jewish conversion, and that amounts to life from the dead. Abraham believed that. Now, if Abraham could believe it, and he's 90 year, got a 90-year-old wife, and he's 100, and he doesn't have any children, if he can believe that, why can't you believe that? It, it's, I mean, you have a lot more proof text than Abraham did. And the fact of the matter is, you have a lot more outward evidence to aid your faith than Abraham did. Uh, th- there are many more Christians in the world today, even true Christians, than in Abraham's day. The seed of Abraham has multiplied throughout every nation under heaven. It, it's, it's a tiny remnant at the moment within the nations, but it's far more, far more progress has been made than Abraham perhaps ever dreamed of, in, in, at least in his own day. But he believed this promise of the spiritual resurrection of the nations. He believed, and I would urge you, do not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Be strengthened in your faith, giving glory to God. Be fully convinced that if God promises that all ends of the earth will turn to Him, as we're about to sing in Psalm 22e, if He promises that, then he who made the promise is also able to perform it. Now, we're going to spend time, I understand, I'm not going to push for, the, for your decision to accept these doctrines without providing extensive biblical material to demonstrate it. God, God works through our minds to persuade our wills to believe and cling to His promise. So we're going to spend time looking at these promises in the Scripture, God willing, starting next week. And by God's grace, we're going to seek to be fully convinced that what these verses are saying will happen and that God, in fact, those things seem dark in our own day and it's a valley of dry bones, that Him who promised, He who promised is fully able to spiritually bring life from the dead to the nations. Let's pray. Gracious God, We give thanks for the testimony of your word and we simply ask that you would freely and graciously give us the faith to understand it, to trust in it, 
to believe it and affirm it and cling to it in an unwavering, unswerving manner that our faith would grow strong, even like Abraham, and that we would see, even afar off, these glorious promises in their fulfillment by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.